Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we discuss breakups in the age of cancel culture, why it's normal to want to control your ex, and canceling as a new form of abuse. So welcome back to fucking canceled. Welcome back to fucking canceled. Coming to you live from North Carolina. <laughs> well, not exactly live, but <laughs> coming to you not live, dead from North Carolina. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, we've been traveling, and we are now in North Carolina on our way back to Canada. And we thought we would stop and record a podcast episode for you guys. Yeah, as we do. Um, Before we get into it, we wanted to talk about our Patreon. Yeah. So basically, we have a Patreon. Um, We do post writing and um, extra goodies on the Patreon. But largely, the Patreon is a way for you to support the podcast. Yeah. You know, we want to keep the podcast free. Um, We don't want to put ads up. We don't want to, like, put, you know, episodes behind paywalls and stuff like that. Um, It's not really our jam. But... As it turns out, it does actually cost a lot to run a podcast. Yeah. And so, like, we we aren't even paying ourselves, and we have expenses for the pod. And basically, we'd like this project to feel more sustainable. Um, so if you believe in what we are doing and you think that it's important, we would really appreciate it if you would consider um, becoming a patron. Yeah, it helps us pay for, like, our transcriptions that we do for people who are, you know, want to just read it instead of listening. Um, or also, you know, for accessibility reasons. Um, it also helps us pay for... Um, our editor and um, for hosting in yeah. particular. Yeah, and like maybe we might even want to buy a second microphone so that you know we can do interviews in person with two mics instead of all leaning around one single mic. Crazy, <laughs> crazy idea. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in finding out more um, and you're considering becoming a patron, we'd really appreciate it. You can find us at patreon.com slash fucking canceled. And I'm pretty sure you have to type in the address because I think Patreon doesn't allow you to like search on the website for content that is considered 18 plus. And I think we are because we swear a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, check us out, patreon.com slash fucking canceled. And thank you so much to everyone who is a patron. Um, it really helps us to keep the podcast going. Yep. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about quite a controversial topic. Um, It's one that I post about um, on my Instagram sometimes. And on the one hand, it's like very well received. There's a lot of people who are like, thank you for saying this and talking about this. And on the other hand, it's very controversial and people get mad at me. Yeah. I mean, people's, you know, emotions get very heightened around this topic. Yeah. And so. For understandable reasons. Yeah. Um, Including my own. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a triggering um, topic from multiple different angles. So we're giving you a heads up about that going in. Basically, what we are talking about is the phenomenon of canceling your ex um, or people canceling their exes. Um, And specifically, we are focusing on cancellation of an ex based on accusations of abuse. And even more specifically, we are talking about the concept of false accusations, overstated harm, or reframing mismatched needs and desires within a relationship or normative relationship conflict as evidence 
of abuse. Right. And so when we talk about this or when people talk about this, like usually there is a a pretty common refrain um, saying that false accusations are actually incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, often people trot out like a certain uh, study, I guess it was done in like the 80s, saying that, you know, around like 2% of, of rape accusations are, are false. Um, and, you know, that's, I understand why people bring that statistic out, but there's a couple of problems with it, right? Like one is that it's, you know, this like unsa- unsourced study from who knows where. Um, another is that it's only about rape accusations. And the third is that, like, yeah, it's only about accusations that are being reported to the police. So, you know, what we're talking about is quite different. Um, we're talking about people making um, usually very vague, like very nebulous accusations um, to the internet, not, yeah. not to the police. Um, usually they're not like accusations of like specific um, instances of sexual assault. Usually they're sort of like these these kind of words that can be very fuzzily defined, like abuse or like gaslighting or like things like that. Um, and and yeah, I think that it's it's just important for us to point out. I mean, this is it's it's really hard to have like hard statistics on this, but like anecdotally at least, like this this shit is like really common in yeah. the nexus, you know? Yeah, it is, and I think. It can be crazy-making um, for people who have gone through this, who have been on the receiving end of of false accusations and the resulting cancel campaigns that have blown up their entire life, to hear that basically, like, what they experienced doesn't happen. It's not a thing, right? And for us, like, we're in, um, we're in an unusual position um, because of the podcast that we constantly hear about people's cancellation campaigns, right? Like, people write to us. We have met many, many, many canceled people at this point, and we have heard in depth from their perspective um, what happened to them. And, you know, my experience is that there are people who... Basically, my experience is that people tell me the truth. Like, if if they've been accused of something and it's something that they did, they tell me. And if they were accused of something and it's something that they didn't do... They tell me. And if they were accused of something and in that relationship, you know, they didn't act like their best self and there are things that they regret, but they didn't do these specific things or they're being like misrepresented in a pretty major way, they tell me that. And I think that the reason that they tell me this is because due to my outspoken abolitionist politics and the fact that I don't see anyone as disposable, including people who have been abusive, people don't really have a reason to lie to me, right? Um, And I do believe the people who tell me these things because people who admit that they were, like, abusive in some capacity or another, they're pretty forthcoming about it. And then there's a lot of other people who, in great detail, describe to me, you know, what happened in that relationship and how they feel that they're being profoundly misrepresented. And then there's, like, a huge, um, you know, huge, huge, huge fallout and consequences in their life, which is something yeah. we're going to get more into. There's, there's also, like, a lot of people who we've talked to who, um, you know, never... who tell us that they never really believed that there were a lot of, like, false accusations out there until Mm -hmm. it literally happened to them. Yeah. And then they saw, like, how sort of, like, disturbingly easy it is for that to happen and also how severe the consequences are and how there's, like, basically no recourse. Yeah. Um, So that's been another experience that we've heard a lot about. Yeah. And then also, being people who have, like, been inside the Nexus for many, many years, we've also, like, firsthand just witnessed these things play out, right? And I'm sure, like, if you are inside the Nexus, um, you have also witnessed these things play out and you have being encouraged to accept all accusations at face value and it's in fact like punishable to question them in any way right um and prior to my own awakening about this stuff yeah like I was happy to like um 
to co-sign anybody saying that anyone else was abusive because or like I, harmful. Yeah, because I was like, you know, why would somebody lie? I believe survivors, right? Um, but over the years, I started to notice that first of all, this happens a lot. It happens often. Um, and I was also noticing the way in which it like shapes the way that people relate to each other in these scenes. And like, just like anecdotally, one experience that I had was like two friends of mine who were dating each other and were having like a lot of conflict in their relationship, but like nothing that could be defined as abuse, just like them arguing about stuff. Right. They were like a couple who was previously monogamous and was like opening their relationship, which is like a time of high conflict for like a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and they were, they were arguing and fighting and there was like a bunch of times when they were like possibly going to break up and they were like getting close to that. And I was friends with both of them and both of them came to me privately and were like, am I being abused? Like, is this abuse? And like the, the sense that I get from that is that both of them were aware that like, if the relationship ended, that like somebody was probably going to call abuse right and so it's like better to strike first because otherwise you're going to be the abuser and like neither of them were acting like their best selves both of them were being like chaotic and emotional and like you know not being their best selves but like objectively listening to the behaviors i'm like yeah some of these behaviors are like not the the greatest or whatever but like no i i don't think either of you are being abusive so yeah so i basically just like we wanted to start the episode by being like this is actually not an uncommon phenomenon yeah all that is is to establish that um, there is a purpose to talking about this stuff. You know, it's not like some sort of like fringe um, phenomenon that that only happens so rarely that it's like kind of like a, a ridiculous thing to talk about, especially yeah. like within the Nexus, which is you know our our main sort of um, site of inquiry. Yeah, and I guess before before we go further, I just also wanted to say one more thing about that, which is like kind of important for me to mention in this episode, although I've talked about it on the podcast before, which is that I myself did this. Um, I myself made false accusations against my ex, right? And I have written um, an article about it, which you can find on my Substack, and we'll link it in the show notes. But it's called "I Called My Ex Abusive When They Weren't," and basically, like, I went through that experience of being in an unhappy relationship that in which my needs weren't met and in which there was conflict, um, and then I experienced a lot of distress, and then I was encouraged, like, literally encouraged by my friends to interpret that distress as evidence of me having been abused. And then I made vague accusations against my ex that they were abusive without defining what I meant by that, you know? I did not do, like, a massive cancellation campaign against this person, thankfully, but I did, like, say that to a bunch of people, and that was, like, spread around, you know? So I come at this from, like, multiple angles, you know? And, like, ultimately, the reason that we care about this and the reason that we're talking about this is because we so fundamentally oppose abuse and we want to um provide tools for people in community to actually be able to discern what is abuse and what isn't so that they can effectively um intervene in abuse and effectively respond right and also to provide tools for people who are experiencing relationship conflict and not abuse right like if you're experiencing relationship conflict like there are also like specific tools that can be useful for you or if you're going through a breakup and you need to grieve like there's specific tools that might be useful for you so we shouldn't just be like using the abuse accusation as just this like one size fits all response to any type of relationship situation that causes distress yeah and also because we want to say that like like we believe that, objectively speaking, um, canceling your ex in some sort of, like, egregious way is a form of abuse. Yeah. And, and we oppose 
that. Yeah, and we're going <laughs> to unpack... We're going to unpack all of this. Yeah, what we mean by that. But basically, if you take abuse seriously and you care about interpersonal violence and stuff like that, then it's a little bit more complicated than simply um, believing all accusations and carrying out whatever demands are being made by the accuser. Yeah. So let's get into it. So the first thing we want to talk about is um, why it's actually, like, why it's normal to want to control and punish your ex. And definitely we're not saying that everybody wants to do this, um, and, you know, we're not saying that it's good, um, but we are saying that it is, like, an understandable impulse, that it comes from certain, um, you know, certain psychological mechanisms that we can understand, um, and that, you know, um, because of that, it's we're able to understand why somebody might want to do that without villainizing them or making them into like an evil guy or saying that um, that kind of you know antisocial behavior is monstrous and, and unforgivable right um, actually people do things that are not great uh, all the time and there's reasons for it and we can investigate those reasons and we can think about them clearly yeah exactly um, and so as people know I am a little bit of a therapy nerd and so I'm going to be providing some context and background and information about this yeah oh and I guess I should just quickly point out that when I say like control and punish your ex I'm actually talking about the phenomenon of cancellation in, in this case, because, you know, to cancel your ex is to try to control and punish them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so why is it um, that people want to do these cancellation campaigns against their exes? Like, if this is such a common phenomenon inside the nexus, which is, we are arguing that it is, like, what is going on, right? Like, one way of understanding it is simply that just abuse is, like, absolutely rampant and that all of these accusations are 100% true. And um, many people do seem to believe that. We do not believe that because we have seen that that is not true. Like, we have talked to lots of people. As I said, I have made false accusations. We have good reason to believe that these accusations are actually quite commonly false and overstated. And so if that is the case, like, why is this happening, right? And so I want to talk about this a bit as a therapy nerd and a person who is really interested in attachment theory and the nervous system. So I've talked about this before. Um, on the podcast, we had a whole episode on attachment. We did, right? On yep. fucking feelings? Yep. Yeah. Um, so but yeah, maybe you could give like a brief rundown of attachment theory. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe I'll try my best super, to make super it quick. super quick. Basically, human beings are social animals. We have evolved to require close relationships. And we have entire mechanisms in our bodies that help us to do that in the nervous system, right? So... It is natural and normal for human beings, not just children, but also adults, to form deep, important attachment relationships. And those attachment relationships and their security are very important for our own sense of security and our sense of safety and well-being in the world. For everyone, this is true. But for some people, people who have histories of trauma, people who have like mental health stuff going on, and people who have um, attachment trauma or insecure attachment, um, this is particularly true. That like threats to our close attachment relationships can be perceived by our nervous systems as profound danger, right? Right. Um, I don't think I have time in this episode to fully unpack attachment theory because it's going to take fine, me yeah. a really long time. But 
we'll definitely link the episode where I do unpack it and we'll throw some um, some further reading into the show notes for people if you're curious because there is a whole body of knowledge and science around this that explains what I'm talking about in further detail. But suffice it to say that all people experience distress when there are threats to their primary attachments and people who have insecure attachment styles or previous trauma or other stuff going on can experience even more heightened distress, right? And so what that means is that when we lose a primary attachment, it kind of sends us into emotional chaos, especially for people who have, you know, an insecure attachment style. It can feel like dying. And like, I really do not say that lightly, like losing your primary attachment can feel like you are dying and it feels absolutely awful. And there's like an evolutionary reason for that because it's like, we are supposed to hold on to our attachments to survive, like that we're social animals. We evolved this, right? But we are currently living, you know, in a different modern context in which actually we do sometimes dissolve our attachment relationships and form new ones for various reasons. We may decide that the attachment relationship that we are in is not actually good for us, or there are mismatched needs, or there's too much conflict in the relationship, or whatever it is, and we may need to dissolve that um, that level of attachment with that person. And so when that happens, we can feel a huge amount of internal distress, right? Yeah. And I think it's useful at this point to try to imagine times in your life, especially if you're not like a sort of like insecurely attached person, um, to try to get a feel for it, you know, to try to imagine times in your life when you have been in extreme danger or when some sort of like relational, um, thing has been going on in your life that like made you feel so completely out of control that you like didn't know what to do with yourself, you know? Um, cause I think, you know, for some people who, who don't have that kind of trauma, that kind of trauma or that kind of like attachment injury, um, it can be very difficult to understand like why someone would react yeah. to that extent. Um, but it, yeah, it's helpful if you sort of imagine, like imagine yourself in very extreme danger where you literally believe that you might actually be about to die or that like you could, or that, you know, someone is, um, attacking you in, in a very like direct yeah. and like dangerous manner. Or you're losing something that you absolutely need to survive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I know for all of the anxious, preoccupied, um, people listening that you do not need to imagine any other scenario because you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Anyone who has anxious, preoccupied attachment or who leans anxious, preoccupied knows the feeling of, oh my God, my primary attachment is threatened and I literally feel like I'm going to die. Um, and so when you're experiencing that is such profound, intense distress. And like, I really cannot emphasize that enough, right? And because we don't actually have a lot of um, education culturally around this stuff, people do not understand why they are feeling such intense distress, right? Um, and so basically, there's two things that I want to say about this. Mm -hmm. One is that trying to control your own internal state, right, is is hard, especially if you don't have tools, you don't understand your nervous system, you don't understand what's happening to you, don't understand why you're feeling this intense, right? But one thing that can be a shortcut to um, controlling your own internal state is attempting to control your partner's or your ex-partner's behavior, right? right. right. Um, and we can find this inside relationships and also when relationships end. It's very common for people with anxious, preoccupied um, tendencies to try to control their partner's behavior within a relationship because they feel distressed. Um, by various things that their their partner is doing, and so they try to attempt to control that behavior. It, once the relationship has ended, though, you know you're not even in a position anymore to, to try to negotiate for changes in the relationship because the relationship is now over, right? You have lost 
any kind of semblance of control of the other person, which you technically should not have been trying to control the other person in the first place, but you did have some avenues towards, like, compromise or, like, negotiation, which basically have dissolved once the relationship has dissolved. This person is now no longer attached to you, and this person does not actually owe you anything, right? And so that floods the nervous system with such distress, and so people will grasp at trying to control their ex even once the relationship has ended. And I want to say that this is not just something that happens inside the nexus. This is something that happens in general to people who have disorganized attachment, um, anxious, preoccupied attachment, previous trauma, or any other thing that causes them to have a really profound reaction to breakups. They will try to control their ex after the relationship has ended. And it's a common behavior. What the nexus does, though, is it provides a new way to to sort of understand and justify that behavior, right? And I want to make it really clear that we are not saying that this is an intentional or malicious thing, right? And so I'll just use myself as an example here, right? When I ended my relationship with my ex, who I had been with for like three years, and in that relationship, I was very unhappy because basically it was not a good match and my needs weren't being met. I was in an anxious avoidant dynamic and my partner was not really interested in working on things. And so I was stuck being really unhappy and struggling for the relationship for a long time and eventually reached a point where I decided this wasn't working for me and I needed to leave. And I did, but I literally felt like I was going to die and I felt so fucking awful all the time. And like when I would see my ex, like you know, because we lived in the same city, sometimes I would see my ex, like, on public transit or something, and I would basically have, like, a panic attack. Like, I felt so awful. And so I talked to a friend about this, and I was like, you know, this relationship was really unhappy. I was so unhappy for years, and, like, I'm having this very extreme reaction when I see them. And my friend literally said to me, your, your feelings are evidence of abuse, right? And so I thought about that, and I was like, okay, look, maybe that's true. Maybe... Um, the fact that I do feel this intensely means I was abused because why else would I feel this intensely? Like it seemed weird, right? And I didn't have like a nervous system or attachment lens to understand why I would be feeling this intensely in a non-abusive kind of situation, right? Um, and so what I also noticed is that when I started to think about my ex as abusive, it was regulating to my nervous system because then instead of just feeling like spiraling and out of control, I could feel angry, which is like a fight response, which is like more regulating and directed than like just feeling helpless and, and like chaotic. Right. For sure. Um, and so that was regulating for me. And so I started to say that my ex was abusive, not because I was intentionally lying, but because it was an explanation that was provided to me that seemed to make sense based on the severity of my nervous system reaction. And it was actually years later, a therapist who challenged me on this and told me that, Actually, the word abuse means something specific, and it's important for me to be able to discern the difference between an unhappy relationship and an abusive one. So I think that this is like a relatively common experience for people with insecure um, attachment or any kind of like sort of trauma history or mental illness or distress. Do you think I explained that like fairly well? (laughs) Yeah, I think you did. Okay. Um, But yeah, I mean, it definitely brings us to the next point, which is that if if you want to be able to figure out whether or not you have experienced abuse, you can't just uh, depend on your own subjective experience um, of your 
nervous system. Yeah, you know exactly. Um, because your nervous system can, I mean, so to speak, play tricks on you. And also, as we're going to get into later in the episode, there are like many, many factors within the nexus that can push you in the direction yeah. of uh, deciding that what you've experienced is most accurately described as abuse. Um, and so, yeah, so we need tools to discern between that experience of emotional flooding and uh, what could actually and 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 um, accurately be called abuse, right? Yeah. Um, so we've talked in previous episodes about you know our our sort of definition of abuse, like what we think can can actually be accurately called abuse. Um, we, we have like a couple different ways of thinking about it. You know, one is sort of like a list of like specific types of behavior mm-hmm. and another is this sort of um fourfold like measure of of um of like well the severity of it and the frequency and stuff and we'll get into that but um yeah so discerning between emotional flooding and abuse is really important yeah and i think that it's really important i think that there's a lot of people who um will get defensive when they hear this and the reason for this is that yes like we come out of a culture with a long history of invalidating abuse and like I understand this because I'm a survivor of child abuse in which it was not believed and I was not protected you know so I understand the feeling of defensiveness when people say we actually need to get clear about what happened um but we do actually need to get clear about what happened for like a number of reasons one because it's like what we are going to do in response really depends on what actually happened, right? Um, And this idea that being a survivor is like a subjective experience and that abuse doesn't mean something specific and that it's actually more about how that landed for you and like how it internally feels um, rather than it being about an objective external behavior that can be um, described um, and pointed to as a specific thing that happened. Like, this is not helpful. It's not helpful for survivors. It's not helpful in terms of, like, teaching people how not to be abusive. And it's not helpful, um, you know, in terms of, like, having an appropriate response to something that happened, right? Because if a situation is conflict, then we need, like, conflict tools, right? Right, right. And if a situation is abuse, then we need tools about intervening on abuse and, like, recovering from abuse. So they're different things. Um, And so I'm just going to list off a couple basic things um, that can be understood as abusive. And then we'll we'll qualify this a bit as we go on. Um, But I think it's really important that we actually name what kinds of behaviors actually are abusive. So physical violence and sexual violence of any kind are examples of abuse controlling behaviors or attempts to control your your partner's behavior is an example of abusive behavior threatening behavior both like verbal threats um and also like behavior that implies that violence could happen like throwing things or smashing things or screaming at someone these are all examples of threatening behavior which is which is abusive behavior and then also things that are degrading humiliating or in some way dehumanizing Um, These behaviors are all um, on their own abusive. Now, I do think that, you know, the other thing that we talked about, I think in episode six, um, where we talk about frequency, um, intentionality, whether or not it's possible to escape and how severe it is. I think that these two ways of thinking about abuse can go hand in hand. And so what I mean by this is that most people 
in relationships have conflict. If you add into that, you know, people having dysregulated nervous systems, not acting like their best selves, you know, just like heightened conflict about a serious issue in the relationship, add into that like substance use, stuff like that. There's lots of times when lots of people have acted in ways that could be described on this list that I just gave. For example, if you were fighting with your partner and you yelled in their face and said, like, I can't fucking stand you when you're like that. Like, that on its own is a behavior that is, you know, it's an abusive behavior and it's it's not good. You shouldn't do it, you know? But if that happened one time in a relationship and then the behavior was never repeated and the person was like, wow, I'm really sorry that I did that. I recognize that I need to work on myself. Um, I think that that is a different situation than somebody who does that repeatedly and is defensive about it or maybe says they'll change and then never does or says that they don't really need to change because it's acceptable behavior. Right. Like it would make no sense to describe the relationship itself as abusive on the basis of like, you know, a singular incident like that. Yeah. Or an incident that like might land on that list, but was like very like not severe in its consequences, you know? Yeah. And so I guess basically like we're providing these things because we want to offer actual tools to help people respond in appropriate ways to things that are happening, not because we're trying to, like, figure out who's bad and who's good, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you could have acted in ways that are abusive. Maybe you did that once. Maybe you did that as a pattern. In neither of those cases are we saying that you're bad and you deserve to have your life to be destroyed. We're just saying that, like, those are behaviors that actively hurt other people and they're not good and we should find ways to not do them. For sure. And 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 these behaviors that we're talking about, you know, they they fall on like not just one spectrum but like multiple spectrums, mm-hmm. you know? Like that's the whole point of our sort of like thing about severity, intentionality, possibility of escape and frequency is that like they fall on spectrums, you know? They're yeah. they're fuzzy um and you know we don't we don't offer like an easy checklist where you can like check off three boxes and be like, "Oh, it's abuse," you know, because we don't really think that the world typically works that way you know obviously there's some very like severe and egregious like like versions of abusive behavior where it's like very fucking cut and dry you know like no one is debating that um but there's lots of things that are that kind of fall somewhere in the middle and they're they're a bit fuzzy and i mean the other thing that we really want to you know you know push home is that um it's funny like people have called us like abuse apologists in the past and it's kind of like like yeah sure like people who who, you know, commit acts that hurt others or that aren't their best self or, and so on and so forth, like, are all kinds of people. Like, that's, like, really, like, many people, um, for many reasons, can can carry out actions that they might later be ashamed of, you know? Of course, including, very importantly, survivors. I mean, like, absolutely. people and with like, trauma. S- splitting the world up into, like, survivors and abusers is, like, a very childish yeah. and, like, way of looking at it's, the world. It's very, it's very inaccurate and inappropriate way of describing things. And unhelpful. Yeah, but... Anyway, so the reason that we list out these specific behaviors is because it's like if someone's saying, okay, I was abused, like specifically what what is meant by that, right? And I think that like asking further questions or like having a conversation about it can can clarify some things, right? So like with my therapist, you know, when I was like, well, my ex abused me, um, this one ex who, who I um, – had been in an unhappy relationship with, you know, when, when I actually described the behaviors in that relationship, my therapist was like, I don't hear anything that actually is physically or sexually violent, that is controlling, that is threatening, that is degrading, hum- humiliating, or dehumanizing, right? So, so what specifically am I referring to when I say abuse, right? And what I was referring to was, well, my needs weren't being met, right? And that's an unhappy relationship, not an abusive one. Um, another ex- example is just like, to give some ideas of, like, how this could play out in in real life or in action. Like, if I was talking to a friend, right, and they were, like, 
describing their um, their relationship, and they were like, you know, we we get into fights, and then sometimes he yells at me and he swears, and I find it like really scary. Like to me, that's like a red flag, you know. On its own, I don't think it's evidence of that person being in a abusive relationship in the ongoing sense but I would be concerned and I would be like okay have you talked to him about this like is this behavior like how often is this happening how does he respond when you tell him that you really don't like that etc right so there's there's these behaviors some of them on their own can be like information of things heading in a bad direction that we should be concerned about and intervening on and providing feedback on and some of them like if my friend was like you know um my ex is like you know, going through my email every day and, like, trying to not let me see certain people um, and frequently calls me names that are, like, really degrading and humiliating, then I would be like, that is an abusive relationship and I am concerned for you, Yeah, you're, like, you know? in danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, if they were, like, you know, my ex, like, my, my partner has, like, assaulted me or whatever, it's like, that is an abusive relationship. Um, so I hope that that's clear. But basically, what... What we are saying is that when a person is going through a breakup, it is extremely normal to experience extreme distress and um, a really intense desire to control your ex. It's very normal. But if if you are in the nexus, that intense distress um, and desire to control your ex gets fed through this like cultural understanding of abuse as something that is about your own subjective experience rather than about objective acts that happened, right? And so if you are in that position where you're like, okay, was I abused? Like, I'm feeling really intense about this breakup. I'm really upset about seeing my ex, like, out at events. You know, it doesn't feel fair that they are, like, getting away with this or whatever. Then you need to, like, actually ask yourself, what happened, you know? And you need to talk about it with a therapist, preferably, um and or with trusted people who you actually can trust to, like, be honest with you about what actually happened, right? Um, and then go through the actual behaviors in that relationship and and do this process of discernment to be, like, were these abusive um, behaviors in the relationship or is this just, like, an unhappy relationship where there was, like, a lot of conflict or where my needs weren't met or whatever it is. And this is the important thing. If it wasn't an abusive relationship, that doesn't mean that you don't get to feel bad. It's okay for you to feel like your world is falling apart and like you are devastated and like you are angry and like you are hurt and it is normal if you feel like you're dying. Yeah. And you can be mad at people who simply didn't meet your needs. Yeah. You know, you can be mad at people for no fucking reason if you want to. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, you can you can punish them in the, the privacy of your own head as much as you want, right? Like there's lots of ways to work through those feelings of like grief and anger. Um, but particularly, and this is our next point, grief is like a yeah. really, really important element of working through all of this shit yeah um yeah you want to talk about grief yeah so basically when as i said we have these attachments right it's normal it's biological we evolved this way to have these very important adult attachments if a person that you love dies for example you know there are like stages of grief that you go through and some of them are like anger and bargaining and like not wanting to believe that it happened and not being able to let go and then eventually you get to a place where you can accept that that attachment you know is still very important to you, but that that person is no longer there. And so that that attachment cannot exist in the same way, right? And grief is this process of basically allowing an attachment to change forms and to not be what it was. It is no longer that that main important attachment in your life and can no longer fulfill that role for you. And the same thing happens even without death. When we go through a breakup, Someone who was our closest person, who was our attachment figure, now becomes, in many cases, basically a stranger, you know? And that sends our entire attachment system into, like, disarray. 
attempting to control the X is a way to try to regulate and to basically not let go of the X, right? Is a way to try to maintain that attachment in a sort of like backwards way because you're not, you're, you guys aren't together anymore, but that person basically is being controlled by you, right? Um, and that can play out in many different ways inside and outside of the nexus. But anyone who's trying to control their ex is basically not allowing themselves to grieve the fact that the attachment has has gone. Like that attachment is not there anymore. And so in order to actually move through that really intense distress and let it go, we have to grieve. And we're really, really bad at grief in general in this culture, whether it's through death or through like endings. Um, and so many people literally don't know how to do that. Um, and we don't have processes to do that. And we're encouraged to go the other route of like control. Um, but we actually have to grieve and let ourselves feel sad. And that actually can take a bunch of time, you know? Um, but I went through it, like, you know, like I've gone through it multiple times where, cause I am one of these people who feels an intense desire to control my ex. I'm not going to lie. It's very natural to me because I have insecure, disorganized attachment, leaning, anxious, preoccupied. So I do not want to let go and I want to control. But when I have actually gone through that process that sometimes, you know, can take years even to fully complete, I no longer feel that way. Like when I see my ex now, I don't feel, um, I don't have a panic attack or I don't feel like very intense dysregulated emotions because I have made peace with the fact that that is not my attachment anymore. You know, I have grieved it and let it go. Yeah, and that's like a painful process. It doesn't feel good, you know. Um, Whereas, you know, to some extent at least, even though it kind of like uh, drags it out, trying to control your ex and trying to punish your ex, whatever, um, giving into like your vindictive streak or giving into your urge to to control things um, does feel good on some level, right? It feels empowering. Yeah, and it can help you regulate your nervous system at least like temporarily, you know. Um, but ultimately will not allow you to yeah. rewire your nervous system, which is what you need after a relationship is over. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so then the last point that, that we wanted to make um, here in terms of the whole why it's normal to want to um, control your ex thing is that this behavior in, um, in cancel culture, in the nexus of canceling our, our exes um, emotionally has the same underpinnings of the behavior of what we think of as classic or traditional domestic violence. And so I really want um, people to try to hear me out as non-defensively as possible in this. And I say this as somebody who is a survivor of domestic violence, okay? So domestic violence or abusive relationships or whatever you want to call it, Relationships that do include the things that we talked about earlier, physical and or sexual violence, control, threats, um, degradation, humiliation, dehumanization, relationships that have a pattern of this. Um, the people in those relationships, the, the abusers, the people who are behaving abusively, have dysregulated nervous systems and they have issues with their attachment and there's a lot of stuff going on there. And they, after those relationships end... They very often, in fact, I would say probably universally, but maybe not always, but very, very often they respond in a way of wanting to control their ex, right? For sure. They cannot stand their ex moving on. It is like a, it is a classic hallmark thing of domestic violence. And so this is why so many domestic violence relationships, like the most dangerous time in a physically violent domestic violence relationship for the survivor or the victim is right when they are trying to leave, right? 
because that fills the abuser with rage and makes them want to lash out violently as an attempt to prevent the person from leaving. So that is the most likely time for um, DV survivors to be killed, is when they're trying to exit. If they do manage to exit, stalking is a very, very common part of domestic violence. Um, and when I, like, I have gone through that. Like, I have left a physically violent relationship and I experienced stalking. And that stalking went on for years. And the logic and the things that this guy would say later on in my life, like when I started to witness these cancel campaigns and I started to hear the specific language and the ways that people who, um, who instigate these campaigns talk about it, I was absolutely struck by the similarities between the logic and the emotional underpinnings of this and what I experienced with my overtly domestic violence situation, right? So like a lot of what abusive people will say is I'm not going to let you get away with this. You're never going to get away from me. Um, like whatever, I'm going to make your life hell on earth. Like you're not going to be able to escape me. You're not going to be able to get away with this. Um, and similarly in cancel campaigns, there is a lot of the same kind of language. It's like, you can't get away with this. You're not going to be allowed to continue on your life without my interference. Yeah. So I would say that, like, somewhat, okay, like, what we're proposing here is a kind of, like, attachment um, frame for understanding, like, an attachment and nervous system frame for understanding certain, like, types of behavior. Um, in this case, the type of behavior we're talking about is the, like, urge to control uh, attachments that are, like, getting away from you. And we're saying that, yeah, that those have an origin in, or it's, it's most... Um, helpful to think about their origin as being like um, within the nervous system and within like the, the attachment system. Um, and that as those behaviors become manifested, they're sort of filtered through various kinds of ideological mm -hmm. structures that allow people to justify them. Exactly. Um, because humans will, humans float in a sea of ideology. We cannot escape it, you know, yeah. um, whether or not we know that um, as individuals. And so, Basically, how this plays out, if you are some, you know, I don't know, like, typical, like, macho, like, DV guy versus if you're some, like, you know, queer in the Nexus, um, will look differently. Yeah. Right? And the Nexus offers um, certain ideological justifications for behavior that, in its root, if not necessarily in its actual outcomes... Um, is similar to classic domestic violence type uh, behavior. Yeah, and I think for listeners, like, I think some of you might be saying in your minds, okay, but, you know, in the case of people canceling their, their, their exes who they're accusing of abuse, like, they're doing that because the ex did something wrong, right? Like, they're doing that as a response to having been wronged, whereas this traditional domestic violence situation, this abuser has not been victimized, so it's not a comparable thing. But I would say that this is actually not accurate because, as we said with the whole discussion of discernment, right, whether or not you have been abused or deeply wronged, is not just a subjective internal experience. It has to do with objective events. And I think that anyone who has been in a relationship that is severely abusive will understand and remember that the abuser very often does feel victimized. 
and very often justifies their behavior by framing themselves as the victim, right? Right, you've done something to me. You've done something to me, and that is why I'm doing this to you. And the ideological framework that Jay was talking about is different, right? Like, it's it's if we're talking about, like, a traditionally domestic violence situation, often it's gendered violence, often it's a man doing it to a woman. Um, the framework that he is using to justify his feeling of being victimized is definitely not going to be the same as the one that, like, Nexus queers are using. Right, it's going to be a patriarchal one. It's a patriarchal one. one. And so, like, in my case, you know, the way that my ex felt, my abusive, my actually abusive ex, is that he felt that me having had a bunch of sexual partners before I was in a relationship with him was, like, demeaning to him, you know? Um, and he would often make comments about, you know, whatever, you can't turn a hoe into a housewife and things like this. But, like, this logic that, like, if I was a good partner, if I was a good woman, then he wouldn't have to do these things. And that he was being, like, you know, humiliated and wronged by having um, a partner he, who he perceived as, like, a slut, basically. Um, he felt he was being victimized. And I actually genuinely believe that he did feel that way, you know, because his emotional distress was so extremely high and it was set off by things that to him were evidence of me being whatever, promiscuous. And so he would feel like profoundly, profoundly um, overwhelmed by that. And then he would lash out by trying to control me. And so even though, you know, we might find, I mean, I am sure that everyone who's listening to this podcast finds, you know, his ideological framing repugnant and very upsetting and very wrong, that's not what I'm trying to get at. Like, what I'm trying to get at is the emotional undercurrent underneath it, and what was going on for him was that he was in extreme emotional, like, nervous system distress, and then he was filtering that distress through an ideological framework that was provided to him by a larger culture, right? And then he was using that framework to justify the behavior, right? Right. And so, once the relationship ended, he felt that he had the right to continue to control me. And this is, if you ask guys who are abusive and who stalk their ex-partners, they're not going to say, I do this because, like, I'm an abusive guy. Right. They, they have a reason. Like, they have an explanation that makes sense to them. And if you were to, you know, if you were maybe, like, their therapist or someone that they really trusted and were able to get them to dig a bit deeper, I can guarantee you that underneath that initial ideological framing is a deeper emotional and nervous system framing, right? And so what we're trying to say is that it is relationships, attachment, nervous system stuff is very distressing and overwhelming for many, many people, especially those with prior trauma, especially those with insecure attachment, and that the breakup itself is often a profoundly distressing and overwhelming time, and that it is normal across the board for many different types of people to have a response to want to control their ex to soothe their own dysregulated nervous system response, and then there can be an ideological framework that justifies that. And then can actually allow them to feel that they're not doing something wrong when they enact behaviors that are actually abusive towards their ex-partner. Right. So having all that in mind, we we then come to the to the point in our sort of like logical continuation where we can say that um, yeah, canceling your ex is not very different in in kind. Uh, from other sorts of uh, relational abuse. And then we can start asking what actually happens, you know, when we start thinking of cancellation campaigns against your ex as a form of abusive behavior, because it starts asking, it starts begging a lot of questions, right? Yeah. And you have to start thinking about it in a very different manner than is usually offered to you within the nexus. Yeah. And this is something that I feel very strongly about because very often 
I talk to people who are very obviously being abused by their ex-partner. They are being stalked. They are being doxxed. Like, I have heard some really intense stuff happening to people, you know? Really disturbing, yeah. Really disturbing stuff. And these people are actively trying to escape their exes. They are not in any way contacting the person. They are not in any way trying to be in this person's life. They are leaving. And in many cases, like... We Literally, have, like, leaving like, town or the country. Or the country, in some cases, to try to get away from this. And the ex, who is all the while claiming to be the victim in the situation, is, is stalking them, is finding ways to follow them, not necessarily physically and literally, but through the internet and through passing on these... Um, these accusations and the resulting um, harassment and the resulting exile that comes from these accusations to wherever this person goes to try to escape them, right? So let's, like, unpack and define some of the behaviors that are common in these cancellation campaigns of people's exes while keeping in mind everything we just said and the fact that many of these accusations are false or overstated. For sure. So first of all, what you get... And I think this is, like, first and foremost, you know, is these public accusations that have huge consequences and that are that never involve due process of any sort or, like, hearing the, the accused person's side of the story. Yeah. There's no way for the person who um, has been accused to disagree with the accusations. And if they try to, it is just used as further evidence that they are abusive. Um, also, the accusations against them are often very vague. Um... And there is a phenomenon in which accusations that are vague, poorly defined, and lacking specifics are described using words that are highly emotionally loaded and have a lot of baggage. And so, like, let me explain what I mean by that, right? So, if I use a word like abuse, what are the emotional connotations that come up with that, right? As we've said, like, abuse can mean a—it can be used in a whole variety of ways— And so when I say abuser, people have an association to things like physical assault, to like, you know, highly, to like sexual assault, to like highly degrading and controlling and like intense behaviors, right? To domestic violence. That's what people think about when you use the word abuse. I think almost everyone has like an image in their head of like, you know, like a guy standing over like a woman who's like cowering like on some stairs or something like that. We have like like a whole like, cultural baggage that comes with the word abuse. And, like, we rightly should because abuse is, like, a very serious thing. But if you aren't specific about what you mean when you say abuse and what you actually mean is the stuff that we were just describing, that you have felt a huge amount of distress um, and that you were very unhappy or there was a lot of conflict, but, in fact, there were no examples of physical or sexual violence, there was no controlling behaviors, there was no threats, there was no degradation or humiliation, then... What you're, it's a false accusation, right? Um, and this thing is actually, this kind of thing is actually like very common. Another example is like the word predator that gets thrown around a lot. For sure. And predator, I mean, that makes me think of somebody who is a repeat, who repeatedly sexually assaults people. Like that is what it sounds like. Or somebody perhaps who preys on like underage people to try to have sex with them or something like that. Like yeah. it, it has very specific connotations that come with it. But if it's not defined and, like, what you actually mean is that, I don't know, this person is, like, dating more people than you would like, 
and you don't feel good about that, that is not an example of that person being a predator, right? But because the person, because there actually has been no specific concrete accusation, there's just these highly emotionally loaded words that are not defined, you know, of course people are going to be like, no, like abuse and like and preying on people are very, very serious things. So of course we're going to take them seriously. But if you want to ask questions about specifically what do you mean by that, you're pretty much going to get shut down as like a rape apologist. For sure. Or like the all-time favorites are, I think, uh, manipulation and gaslighting yeah. are like two really classic ones that are like extremely vague in, in terms of like what the actual content of that accusation is. Yeah. But both summon up images of like a, basically like a sociopath, you know, like someone who um, purposefully and with a lot of like foresight, um, you know, fucks with somebody's head in order to get what they want. Right. right? Who has no like qualms about doing something like that basically a monster right um and you know when you actually dig deeper into like what people mean when they make accusations of manipulation and gaslighting um very often it's it's like these very kind of like vague you know examples of normative conflict or people just like simply like not agreeing about like the sequence of events that took place or something like that totally um yeah and so then some other defining behaviors of these cancellations so social isolation through targeted harassment campaigns of all associates. So, like, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you're already familiar with this, but basically once someone has been targeted and marked um, and accused of being an abuser, it is now socially sanctioned within the Nexus to contact every single person associated with this person, share these accusations, and demand that they withdraw their relationship and support from them at risk of being canceled themselves, right? And so this can spread throughout this person's entire life. It is, like, incredibly hard to um, escape it in any way. Um, It's also... um, affects their material security because like there can be contact towards their employer um also it can be hard for them to find a job because these accusations are like right on google as soon as you google their name so like they've been like marked um and you know again i'm not going to get into it too much in this episode but like it's very shocking to me that this kind of behavior is so accepted in the same movements that claim to be abolitionist because abolitionists would argue that like you know, in in the vast majority of cases that sharing someone's criminal record, like, on the internet publicly is, like, a huge form of punishment that prevents them from, like, living a normal life. And we actually, as abolitionists, like, fight against that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And those people, you know, presumably at least got some degree of due process in court, despite how questionable that due process is. But there's at least some kind of pretense towards due process. But in cancellation campaigns, there's absolutely no due process at all. There's no opportunity or allowance for self-defense against the accusations and the, these public these accusations are publicly available and will never go away yeah and then you get into stalking and doxing which you know uh typically this takes place like only on the internet but you know definitely sometimes uh uh, uh leaks into into real life for mm-hmm. sure um but typically yeah this is you know people um, finding out all kinds of information about you, um, usually people who aren't even, like, involved in the actual, like, original accusations, like, when when these sort of cancellation campaigns can, like, really grow to, like, much wider circles, um, you can start getting sort of, like, people who just make it their business to yeah. to participate in, in cancellation campaigns and, yeah, do things like dox you, um, you know, find out where you live, where you work, um, find out who your friends are, um, find new ways to, like, harass uh, you um, in your everyday life, um, you know, find out what, like, neighborhood you live in. And, yeah, like, post that publicly. and publish, publish that on the internet, yeah. Yeah, um, and also, like, never fucking leave you alone, right, which is, like, the stalking aspect, right? So, you know, we've heard of people who, you know, move to, like, a different city to escape cancellation campaigns that were that were targeting them and then having people uh you know 
from their old city make contacts in their new city in order to continue the cancellation campaign yeah. there, right? Um, so, you know, that's an incredibly, like, intense thing to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, like, again, you know, if you if you strip away the the ideological framing that we were talking about that justifies this behavior and just describe the behavior itself, right? If you describe a situation in which someone's ex-partner is keeping tabs on where they live, where they work, contacting every person that they know, um, like, following, like, the minute details of their life that they're trying to keep private from this person, you know, contacting employers, like, sharing private personal information to the internet, um, basically communicating, like, you are never going to be able to get away from me. That all is is abusive stalking, right? And we would see that if we didn't wrap it up in this um, this ideological framing um, that justifies it. But yeah, so basically, this behavior that we're describing definitely is controlling. It definitely is threatening. It's definitely degrading and humiliating and dehumanizing. Um, the only thing that it doesn't include of the list of behaviors is... Usually it doesn't include physical or sexual violence, but often there is even, like, in some cases there's threats of physical violence um, because we we have all of this stuff going on in a culture that also says things like, you know, kill your local rapist. Um, and so the, the, the severe level of dehumanization that happens within the nexus of people who have been accused of abuse is, like, really severe. And I have heard of examples of people who have been physically assaulted as a result of the cancellation campaign against them. Um but even in cases where that isn't happening, the controlling, the threatening, the degradation, humiliation, and dehumanization are all standard parts of um, cancellation campaigns. Yeah. I would even say that, like, in some campaigns that I've seen or heard of, um, people would include sort of, like, weirdly specific uh, stories about people's, like, sexual um, behaviors or their, like, sexual, like, likes and dislikes and stuff like that as part of the... Uh, cancellation campaign, which, like, is not exactly sexual violence, but definitely, like, falls into that category of sort of, like, sexual humiliation. For sure. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, a big part of domestic violence, like, logic is this idea. It's, like, very common in, like, traditional domestic violence situations, this idea that it is your prerogative to control the sexuality of your partner or your ex-partner. Yes. And so the idea, it's very common with domestic, traditional domestic violence to be, like, I, I'm going to try to prevent you from dating. Or, like, I am going to be enraged at whoever it is that you're dating and in some kind of way try to make that um, impossible for you to do. And it's actually a very common part of cancellation campaigns to attempt to control and basically eliminate the possibility of the target having a dating and sex life after the relationship, which to me is like a huge, huge red flag of abuse. Definitely. Like, and, and like, as you pointed out, this like phenomenon of being completely fucking enraged at the people who do nevertheless date that person yeah. um, is also like completely rampant in the yeah. nexus when people cancel their exes. You totally. Know? And it's, it's actually interesting because it's like very often um, the logic will be, you know, that we're doing this to protect people like this person was abusive. And so therefore we are, you know, getting them banned from dating apps and we are like warning the community that this person is an abuser. So nobody should date them. Um, but if that were the case, then you would think that their response to that person's current partner would be one of compassion and empathy and concern. But very often the current partner of the person, um, who is being accused of being an abuser, like 
the current partner is also canceled and attacked and abused. Yeah. Right? So if, if, if your argument is that this person is at risk of abuse or is possibly being abused themselves, like why are you trying to socially isolate that person, attack them, um, harass them, et cetera? And it call, obviously makes no fucking and sense. And call them an abuse apologist, yeah. you know? Um, when, in fact, according to your logic, you should be concerned that this person is a victim. You should be trying to rescue that person. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, it just goes to show that, like, so rarely is this stuff actually about trying to protect anyone, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally about, like, inflicting maximum punishment and control yeah. over a victim. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean the other the other when we're trying to like determine if if cancel campaigns uh, count as abuse, so to speak, like the other sort of like um, um, like framework that we use for trying to figure out what is abusive or not is like what we mentioned before this these like four different axes of like severity, intentionality, the possibility of escape, and the frequency of the behavior. So if we run cancel culture through this framework, what we get is like the severity. I mean, the severity can be like extremely severe. Um, to the point where, like, every single person that I've ever talked to who, you know, has been canceled has um, talked about wanting to end their own lives, just for example. Yeah. You know, like, um, and we've talked in many different episodes about how severe cancel culture can be, so we're not going to get too deep into that. But we definitely think that it can it can reach, like, unprecedented heights of, sev- of severity, right? Um, and then when you get to intentionality, I mean, you know, I don't think that um, the people who are uh, instigating these cancel campaigns typically think of themselves as intentionally trying to abuse use anyone but, neither but do then any again abusers, yeah. but then again most abusers don't yeah. right um but they do definitely think of themselves as intentionally trying to you know inflict some sort of damage on the person yeah either. and they feel justified in doing so exactly um the possibility of escape i mean it's like impossible to fucking escape like people literally will move to fucking like mexico or whatever yeah. to try to escape the cancel campaigns and they still fucking fall and this is them. one of the most fucked up things about cancel culture um as a person who has been like abused and stalked in the traditional sense and then also has been canceled like one of the things that is so fucked up about cancel culture is the impossibility of escape because when you're being stalked by one person at the very least you know who that person is and what they look like and you can sort of predict you know areas where you may or may not see them and definitely if you do see them you know that that's them you know whereas because cancel culture is taken up by strangers on the internet and it is spread so internationally like you know a survivor of traditional domestic abuse might move cities and basically be able to get away from their stalker but if they're able in cancel culture if they're able to mobilize that not by literally following you but by spreading the accusations to that city and getting new cancelers to take up the cancellation there it's like you literally can't get away from it in any area of your life yeah and when it comes to frequency i mean you know a cancellation like a an accusation might be made like one time originally you know but it is spread around the internet and then remains on the internet forever essentially and then usually is subject to like continuous waves of renewal yeah. right um so the frequency is effectively constant yeah like there it doesn't end Yeah, and I definitely think, like, it ebbs and flows for most people. Like, it comes and goes, and it has peaks. Um, But definitely, like, there's often new waves. And, like, very often, unfortunately, like, what sort of revs up the cancellation again is, like, whenever the person is able to do something positive with their life, right? If they start a new relationship or they start dating someone new or they, like, manage to do something with their career or they manage to, like, try to make some kind of artistic or activist project. Like, as soon as they start to have something positive, like, definitely it ramps up again. Yeah. Um... So the next question about all this is, like, how, how in particular does the nexus 
um, encourage and allow this kind of behavior and what kind of justifications can arise from nexus like ideology around it um, and I mean effectively like what happens is that cancel culture presents people with a new a new option when they break up you know an option that didn't necessarily exist for them before um, because now it's possible to inflict reputational damage um, on just like a completely unprecedented scale like that you couldn't really do before you know um, and to use the threat of that as a means to control people to use that control to keep someone connected to you who doesn't necessarily want to be connected to you like we were talking about earlier um, and all of this while making a, quite a plausible case that you know all of this stuff is progressive and feminist and so on yeah right? and I think that that's like a really important piece of it because it's like we all know that like like at least within the nexus we've sort of established that these stalking type behaviors in the traditional context are wrong like you shouldn't do it you shouldn't try to follow your exes every move and try to control their dating life after you but if you can wrap it up in this language of the ne- of the nexus of you know accusations and you're not allowed to question accusations then you're totally justified in carrying out behaviors that under any other context would obviously be seen as abusive exactly and so much of this rests on this one particular axiom that is um, that is very like important and influential within the nexus, and that is the belief survivors axiom, which, as we've said before, should more accurate, accurately be um, stated as believe accusers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the the believe accusers axiom um, has a whole bunch of different ramifications um, that that enable this kind of behavior. Um, so one of the first ones is that um, it really encourages interpreting your own distress as evidence of abuse, like for a couple different reasons. Um, one of which is that, like, if you are able to, um, if you're able to say that your experiences were experiences of abuse, and that therefore that you are a survivor, um, you are are then therefore like automatically entitled to this this belief yeah. from everyone around you. Yeah. Right? So your your terrible feelings within you, your emotional feelings, can be um, validated on a mass scale if you're if you're successful in, in sort of making that claim. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it also, I mean, because we are not only are we encouraged to just believe survivors, but we are also actively discouraged from asking for more information or questioning anything that is being said, right? So as I said before, like that conversation of discernment, like we are actively discouraged from doing that. Um, and so like a person like me, for example, who wasn't setting out to try to falsely accuse my ex of abuse, but who, when I was talking about the severe distress, was basically met with the interpretation that this was evidence of abuse and was never met until my therapist, like years later, was never met with anybody willing to to ask for more information or to provide another possible explanation for the distress that I was experiencing. Yeah. And, like, it, it also, like, all the things we were talking about before when we were sort of defining the, the behaviors um, of, like, abusive cancellation... Um, like we were talking about the use of these like vague accusations that don't have any like real content in them, you know, and it's it it's honestly like odd why people wouldn't ask for more information when you're making an accusation like that. Like in most other contexts, if you sort of make some some very uh, significant accusation towards someone, like people would ask for you know at least some sort of like evidence or or some like real content or like they're like when did this happen? Like you know, yeah. Um, in most contexts, but the believe accusers axiom within the nexus makes it so that um, that will almost never happen to you within the nexus anyway yeah 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 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it, um, this, this whole framework of like, you must believe survivors, um, prevents us from having the discernment conversation altogether. It allows for the emotionally loaded, vague accusations to play out, um, and blocks any possibility for, for a different interpretation to emerge, either from the accuser themselves or from the community around them or from the accused, because if the accused is um, saying, well, I actually don't agree with these um, accusations and here's why, that will just be used as further evidence of um, of the abuse. And one of the things that I think is really, like, crazy-making about this is, like, many people who experience cancellation campaigns will say that they are being abused. They will say, I am being stalked by my ex-partner. This person is trying to control my life and has been doing it for years, and I am afraid of them, and I have not had any contact with them for years, but they keep contacting every single person I know, and I am so overwhelmed by it, and I literally can't make them stop, and there's nothing I can do, and I'm afraid of them, and I am being abused. But the uh, the belief survivor's axiom does not apply to that person. Yeah, because they were not the first person to make the accusation. <laughs> right, and so it's like, what a poor, like, like very inadequate method for determining whether or not something abusive has taken place. Like, I call dibs on the survivor position. Like, that's basically what it is. It's like, in most cases, with maybe a few exceptions, whoever calls, like, I was abused first is the one who gets to claim the ideological space of survivor and is then believed, right? Um, But if both people are saying, I was abused, or one person is saying, I was abused, and the other person is saying, I'm actively being abused right now. Yeah. Why is it that we believe one and not the other, right? Which really does, I mean, it falls apart as soon as you say this stuff. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? For sure. And people will then say, well, you know, it's actually very common for abusers to say that they were abused in order to um, to escape accountability. That's what they'll say if I say, well, you know, this person is saying that they're being abused. They'll say, well, that's a very common thing for abusers to say. And we're like, yes, exactly. And we're like, yes, exactly. <laughs> And that equally can apply to the person who is making the original accusations. So if that's... Because I agree. I think that it is common for people who um, are behaving abusively to feel that they are being victimized and to frame it that way. So we actually need more information about the specific acts that are being carried out or that were carried out in order to determine, like, whether or not something is abusive. Yeah. So basically there's a space of moral justification within the nexus that it's like it's like a race to get there you know because once you get there you are able to use that to justify your subsequent actions yeah. even though they are um objectively very disturbing often yeah. you know um because you get to claim the space of like center the survivor um you know you can you can like make demands of other people without the without the the danger of anyone sort of like calling you on it yeah you know um yeah, and I mean, related to this is that your 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 cancel campaign can can be um, construed as a form of justice and as a form of activism, yeah. right? And activism within the nexus has you know a high prestige value, right? And if you can frame your basically normative conflict that you're blowing out of proportion as a form of activism, as a form of political work, then you, you know, you have access to a certain amount of cachet from that. Yeah, and I mean, it's very disturbing to to say but like we have literally witnessed i mean one in particular is coming to mind but it's not the only one that i've seen um 
cancellation campaigns in which people are actively and publicly abusing a person, like actively and publicly degrading, humiliating, threatening a person, um, encouraging that person to kill themselves. And while doing this, they are framing themselves as doing activism, doing emotional labor, and are literally asking for people to Venmo them money um, to pay them for their community service of, like, ritualistically and publicly um, destroying this person's life, you know? So, it's pretty fucked up. Like, (laughs) it's pretty fucked up. And, you know, if anyone points that out, like, the way that cancel culture works is, like, there's this built-in coercion, right? Because if anybody points any of this out and is like, actually, this is disturbing, or, like, you know, actually, we have not heard this other person's side of the story. Actually, this person is also saying that they were abused, so why can't we actually hear what they had to say or you know the severity of what is happening to this person is concerning to me or I think this person does deserve to still have some friends like if you say any of that it's very easy for you to be called an abuse apologist um, or somebody who supports abusers and then cancellation campaigns can happen against you so many people even if like they sort of intuitively sense that some of this stuff is wrong or um, scary or like maybe they they know the person who is being accused and they're like this description of this person is really does not matter my um experience of that person so i don't i don't believe this like they really can't say anything without the potential of like huge huge consequences for themselves for sure and yeah i mean within the nexus like as unfortunate as it is like it is um a space of 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 jockeying for kind of status and and um prestige and influence you know i mean especially because of its like social media uh element um, and so people are trying to attain, like, higher levels of social capital, you know? And um, unfortunately, like, being able to add more identities um, and more specifically more, like, victimized identities to your list um, allows you to access more social capital within the Nexus, you know? And I, I don't want to say that I think, you know, that most people who who make accusations of abuse are doing it for that reason. Like, I think that that's like a pretty fucking cold thing to do. And I don't think that most people would do that, but I do think that, um, people know on some level that like, um, being able to, being able to like mobilize discourses of like believe survivors and like, I'm a survivor and therefore you have to believe me. And therefore I have like, um, like one more notch of like social capital within the nexus. Um, like people are aware of that Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't hurt, let's say, you know, Yeah, and also there's, like, a phenomenon, it's, like, related, but there's, like, basically a phenomenon of people who basically, like, appoint themselves, like, canceled people hunters or something. Like, they don't know, they, like, basically go around the internet and collect examples of people who have been canceled or accused, um in major ways and they don't know these people they don't live in the same city as them they often don't live on the same continent as them and they literally like collect these people and then create their own like obsessive you know instagrams or websites about them carrying out the cancel campaign um and often like magnifying it in crazy ways or like adding in new accusations even though they don't know this person at all and this behavior um which is obviously just, like, harassment towards people that they don't even know, is very often, like, celebrated and rewarded. And people, like, I have seen people's, like, Instagram accounts, like, grow... Like, exponentially. Like, thousands and thousands of followers just because they, like, 
they started to attack like some particularly well-known um, cancel person, such as myself, for example. <laughs> um, but you know, this person knows nothing about the situation and is just like is just jumping on the bandwagon and is making like it kind of like their whole thing, and then they they receive um, a huge amount of basically like clout from it. Um, and then finally. Um, another reason that the Nexus like promotes this kind of behavior or creates the conditions under which these these um, cancel campaigns and false accusations are common is that there can be like basically um, defensive canceling, which is like the example of the the two friends of mine that I gave earlier in a cultural context where you know that you know anyone can call abuse and once they do, no one will question it. You will never be allowed to give your side of the story, and you will never be allowed, basically, to defend yourself in any way, and your entire life can be over. Like, and you've seen this happen to people that you know. You've witnessed it play out online, you know? And now you're at the precipice of a potential breakup with your partner, and you're just, like, sort of playing back in your mind every fight you've ever had. And, like, if we're honest, like, most of us have not acted 100% perfectly in our relationships— but that doesn't mean that we're abusers, but if you wanted to uncharitably, like, frame that behavior in the worst possible light or just attach vague descriptors, like, abuse to it without anyone ever questioning specifically what you mean, like, you know that you can and you can get away with it. And so I honestly think that there are some people who do it sort of, like, preemptively because they're afraid that their, their ex is going to do it to them and so they want to strike first so they get to access that position, which is, like, a terribly disturbing situation that we've created. Yeah, it really sucks. So basically all that to say, um, there is a kind of like uh, an emotional and nervous system basis for a lot of this behavior. And then it is uh, filtered through like an ideological system, in this case, the nexus. And the nexus um, not only provides like moral justification for it, but also in various ways um, promotes it and um, like protects it. Yeah. You know? It makes it so that like engaging in those kinds of behaviors is, is protected is protected action. Yeah. And it's it can get pretty crazy, man. Like not only does the like abuse like you have to believe accusers at all costs, right? So you're not allowed to question them, but there are some parts of the nexus in which you're also literally not allowed to question whatever it is that the survivor demands as justice. So like we have actually right, seen right. people who say that murder is okay if that is what the survivor deems is justice. Right. And obviously that's like kind of like fringe extremist nexus behavior. Yeah. But it, like there are strands of it that exist and it, and it's on a spectrum because there are some people who say that like it's not only enough to believe the survivors but that true justice is sort of centering the survivor to the degree that you will carry out whatever it is that the survivor asks even if that behavior is like unfair or unethical, you know? Right. Um yeah, so now that we have, like, laid this out, basically, like, what can we do? How can we avoid this situation? Um, how can we discern between intense emotional flooding and actual danger? And so I think that a lot of it, you know, we've mentioned it several times, but a lot of it comes down to these, like, conversations of discernment. And the nexus makes it really fucking hard to do this because people are scared. People are afraid to ask questions, um... Even of themselves. Even of themselves, and definitely of, like, their friends or people in their lives, and definitely, you know, of sort of, like, situations that are playing out on the internet, right? Because they don't want to be canceled themselves, they don't want to be called an abuse apologist, um, they don't want to get into trouble. So, like, they're going to avoid the very type of conversation that would be most helpful in the situation. And I kind of want to just bring up, like, a little bit of an anecdote here. So, 
I read, I have read the book Conflict Is Not Abuse by Sarah Shulman, but I read it many years ago when I was still pretty deep in the nexus, and so I feel like I need to reread it now, and I feel like I would be able to approach that book with more, um, I would probably be, like, nodding my head the whole time now if I read it today, but it was a hard read for me when I was still deep in the nexus, right? Because, basically, Sarah Shulman is making many of the same arguments that we're making in this um, episode, which is that many times normative conflict is overstated as abuse, right? Um, That's sort of her thesis. And one of the things that she said in the book that I remember still, even though I read it years ago, that really stood out for me and really upset me at the time is she was like, if you, if your friend says, you know, say like, say, you know, a couple and one of them comes to you and says, I was abused by the other one. She's like, you should go and talk to the one who was accused and ask them what happened, what they think, what's their side of the story, you know? And because I am a survivor of actual domestic violence, when I thought about this, it was very upsetting to me because in a situation of actual domestic violence where a person is physically violent, you know, um, if you were to go up to that person and be like, hey, you know, your partner has come to me and said that you're abusive, that could result in that that person attacking the person who said that, right? right? Because it would enrage him. Um, it would enrage him that she had broken the rule um, of speaking about what is going on. Um, and I'm sorry to be using gendered language. I'm, like, always, like, vaguely tiptoeing around using, like, they, them language with abuse because we're not supposed to use gendered language because, like, anybody can abuse anybody. But there is, like, I mean, I was abused by a man and whatever. So I'm saying he in this situation. Yeah. It's also, like, very common. Um, but anyway, so that being said, I was like, that sounds like a really bad advice. But in my mind, I was, of course, picturing a situation of, like, severe abuse and so like that piece of advice is not relevant to a situation of severe abuse right um but what if it's not a situation of severe abuse what if it is one of these situations that we are talking about where it is like a very vague accusation that is like um that is like implying a huge level of severity but actually nothing specific has been said right and so i think i would add a bit of a extra step than Schulman does, you know, which is yeah. that I would ask more information of the person who who's making the accusations first before I would go and talk to the person who is accused. Like, I would ask what specifically they mean. And I think, like, we're so discouraged from even doing that that people are, like, afraid to do that because, like, it's, like, you're not allowed. It's, like, yeah. re-traumatizing for the survivor. And I'm, like, no, it literally is not. And that is a total misuse of what the word re-traumatizing means, you know? Right. It's not re-traumatizing. It might be, like, upsetting and triggering and put them into, like, an intense, like, um, emotional state, and you might need to, like, do it in, like, a controlled way, but just talking about something in and of itself is not going to, like, profoundly re-traumatize them, you know? I'm not saying that you should, like, interrogate them, like, as if they're on the stand and start asking, like, all of these, like, really intense questions. I'm just saying ask them, like, to tell you more. Like, what happened, you know? Um, what's been going on. Yeah. And that's good information to have regardless of whether or not what they're saying is actually a situation of abuse or not. Like, because if you actually ask them for more information, you might find out a whole bunch of things, right? One, you might find out that this person is, like, currently in a very seriously dangerous, abusive relationship. You might find out that this person is in a relationship of high conflict. You might find out that this person is in a relationship of high conflict that has some pretty um, concerning red flags for the potential that abuse might develop, you know? Or you might find out that this person, you know, has, like, very specific needs that are not being met in this relationship, etc. Any of those scenarios would would 
if you're a responsible friend who wants to help this person would require a different response, right? Um, and I mean, I guess in those scenarios, the relationship is ongoing and we're talking about after it has ended, but either way, like in order to understand what happened, you need to know what happened basically. Mm -hmm. So I think if it's someone who's close to you, um, who is coming to you with these accusations, you should find out more information and try to like help them discern whether or not what happened was abuse. For sure. And I mean, like, yeah, like you, if somebody is coming to you and saying, like, I'm in great danger, yeah, you know, like, you shouldn't then go immediately to their, like, boyfriend or whatever and be like, hey, like, uh, no. No. <laughs> you know, because you're, that person is, like, giving you information about, like, what, what they need to be, like, safe, you know, um, but that, yeah, like, that's different from someone making some sort of, like, vague, like, mention of the word. Yeah, abuse. but I think, though, that even if a person says, I'm being abused, you shouldn't just go to their boyfriend you should ask for more information first because yes, it's like they exactly. might mean he he put me through a wall right, you know right and you need to find out you need to find out because if you don't know you might be spurring on a guy who is going to react very violently to the fact that this person disclosed this um and it is true that like you know um people who are in abusive relationships often talk about it in confusing and vague ways you know like when i was in a really abusive relationship i didn't say i was being abused but i said like you know, we fight a lot. Right. That's the kind of way that I would talk about it. But it's like, yeah, it's not like you're going to need to have a conversation to actually find out what is going on. And that may not be an easy conversation. It may not happen right away in one conversation. But, like, you need more information, basically. Um, I do think that if a person, you know, gives you more information and basically what they're describing is not abusive, what they're describing is, like, conflict, but they are not willing to, like, hear... Um, what you're saying when you're like challenging them and being like, I actually, I don't hear you describing abuse here. And they are going forward with like a cancel campaign. In that case, I do think it was probably a good idea to go talk to the person who's being accused mm -hmm. and to offer support or to get their side of things and, and whatever. Um, it depends obviously on your relationship to both of those people and like what is appropriate and everything like that. But for sure. Yeah. So basically like we just need more discernment. We need more discernment in ourselves um, which can be hard. Like, if you're extremely emotionally flooded, like, that can be really hard. Talking to a therapist or somebody that you can trust to actually go through what you're feeling versus what happened, you know? Um, we need more discernment in our close friendships and relationships. We need to be able to, like... It is, like, an act of, like, love and respect to gently challenge someone on that. Because, you know, when you're that emotionally loaded, you can actually do things that you regret. And a person who has not grieved an attachment loss might be, like, totally ready to go cancel their ex. And if the community is just like, yeah, cancel your ex, then they might do it. And then they might later really regret it. Like, that was my experience. Yeah, like, you owe it to your friends to reflect reality back yeah. to them, you know? You really do. And, like, if you are the one who is feeling like you may have just exited an abusive relationship or that you are, like, currently in an abusive relationship, it is very useful for you to have the tools to be able to discern whether or not that's true, you know? And because, because like... If you find out that, um, if, if you think about it and you find that, in, in fact, it was not an abusive relationship and what would be, um, like, then what that means is that it would be much more useful for you to, like, learn how to, like, grieve what has happened, you know, and to be able to move on and, like, um, rewire your, your nervous system so that you can be, like, happy, you know? Yeah, totally. And if the situation was not abuse, but it was some kind of conflict or was some kind of, like, attachment stuff that was going on. Like, very commonly, there's, like, an anxious, avoidant, negative attachment cycle that can play out in a lot of people's relationships. If that was, like, the underlying cause for the distress and the unhappiness in that relationship, you know, if you don't address that, then you're going to end up in an unhappy relationship again. Like, it's 
it's if there was stuff going on that was happening in you that was contributing to the unhappiness you actually this could be a really good opportunity for you to find out what that is you know so that you could then make different choices in your next relationship and not end up in a repeated cycle of um unhappy relationships you actually have more tools to actually understand okay well, whatever, I'm choosing to be in relationships with people who have really different desires or needs than I do, or I'm caught up in an anxious avoidance cycle, and, like, here are the tools that would actually help me with that, or whatever it is. Um, And, like, one other thing that I want to say about this is that I really think that, like, for all of the talk of survivors and trauma that we go on and on about in the Nexus, this way of dealing with abuse accusations is fundamentally and profoundly, like bad for survivors and bad for people who are traumatized because if a person has trauma from for example childhood and they have complex ptsd right what it means to be trauma informed is to understand the way that trauma affects how we interpret things in our in our life today right and by its very nature what trauma is is it is a disability that causes you to have emotional and nervous system responses that are appropriate to past events in the present. That's literally what trauma is, right? And so if a person has PTSD, complex PTSD, some kind of like, you know, attachment trauma, and you respond to them by saying your emotions are evidence of what is happening now, that is literally the opposite of everything that trauma therapy is trying to do, right? Because Traumatized people live in a terrifying world in which they are reliving past trauma from their childhood all the time and are misinterpreting um, neutral uh, information as, like, profoundly dangerous, right? And so if you love a traumatized person or you have someone in your life who has trauma and you want to be a good friend to them, one of the most important things you can do is to help them discern between what is going on that is in their nervous system that is about the past and what is going on that is in their nervous system that is about the present, Um, And sometimes it is about the present, and sometimes it is about the past, and sometimes it's a mix of both, but you actually have to figure that out, and that is, like, truly what it means to be trauma-informed. Yeah. And, yeah, when we think about what we can do about this kind of thing as a community, um, I don't know. I think that we—well, first of all, we need to be aware of all the things that we've been talking about in this episode. So, like, one, that there is, um, you know, an emotional— uh, basis for people to act out in these particular ways or to, to you know, behave in these these ways that we're calling abusive, right? Um, two is that within the nexus, there is a strong, um, um, you know, inc- encouragement for this kind of behavior. Um, and then we need to correct for that. We need to basically be like, okay, so since, since that's the case, it would stand to reason that there are a number, at least, of accusations out there that are false and therefore that are a form of uh, abuse, quite severe abuse, you know? And we are trying to intervene on abuse so that it doesn't occur. Yes. Right? And so what that means is that we need to be very critical of these cancel campaigns. Right? Yeah. I, I think that that's, like, one of the major points that we're trying to make. Yeah. Know? And I think, importantly, you know, as we're talking about this dis- thing you know if you are the person who's experiencing distress you have the opportunity to have conversations of discernment with a therapist and with trusted friends if you are a friend or close community member of the person who is making the accusations you have the opportunity to have conversations of discernment but if you are a stranger on the internet right who is just sort of like passively consuming um and then actively sharing these these uh accusations with very little information and very little specifics like 
you actually don't know if you are participating in a abuse and stalking campaign against someone by taking part in that. You don't know. Yeah. And so I think that the internet has created this wildly inappropriate relationship where like we think that that we are somehow involved in situations that we literally are not involved in, you know? And so my my uh response to that kind of thing, you know, is that I don't know what happened. How could I? I can't pretend to have access to information that I literally don't have access to. And the only way that I could have access to that information is to sort of, like, have a detailed conversation with both the accuser and the accused, hear both sides of their story, also to, like, um, to hear, like, the surrounding context of, like, both of those people's past behaviors and their lives. And then I could maybe make an informed sort of guess about what happened, right? Um, And I think sometimes, like, what is so distressing about all of this is that people are like, well, what if we don't know? Like, what if we're never able to tell who's telling the truth and who isn't? And the fact is, is that... That is almost always the case. We may not know. Like, I do think that there's, like, a lot of, like, you know, information that can help us to discern well or to, like, make really educated guesses about what is probably true. Um, But there are literally, like, if something happened... And one person is saying, this is what happened. And another person is saying, well, no, this is what happened. And they were alone. Literally, the only two people who could possibly know what happened are those two people, right? And sometimes there literally are cases like that where people are saying opposite things and there isn't a way to actually know. The thing is, is that in most of these cases, that's not what's going on because there aren't actually concrete accusations that are being made. They're vague. And so, like, when you actually ask for specifics, there might not actually be any disagreement about the concrete facts it's just the interpretation and the meaning that is being made out of those facts is, like, wildly different. Yeah. Sometimes, though, there literally are things that are being said that are, like, people don't agree on. And, like, in that case, it's, like, you may not actually know. Yeah. Um, and I think that we should be clear about some things that we're not saying, you know. I think that we're, like, we're definitely not saying that if if someone is trying to talk about things that have happened to them, that we should immediately assume that they're lying. Um, I don't think that we should... Um, like, now that we've established that we think that cancel campaigns against your ex are, like, almost always, like, a form of abuse, um, that doesn't mean that we think that we should be sort of, like, canceling the cancelers no. um, and, and, and outing them as, no. as you know, harm causers or whatever. <laughs> right. Because we're fundamentally against that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, we think, though, that, like, um, upping our level of... Skepticism about um, cancel campaigns is also like a really valuable thing to be able to do. Yeah, um, we need to actually have real conversations with the people in our lives to determine what actually they are saying. If they are saying that they are being abused, so that we can respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess like the only other thing um, that we wanted to say is that sometimes. Um, you know, if you have these conversations of discernment, like whether you're the person who's feeling extreme distress after a breakup or whether it's your friend who's coming to you, we're definitely not saying that all of these conversations of discernment are going to result in in deciding that this is a situation of conflict and not a situation of abuse, because abuse is still something that is common and it is still something that happens a lot. Um, and for people who are traumatized, as I was saying earlier, who have this, this difficulty discerning um, whether they're experiencing distress from the past or the present, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be abused again. And it's actually very common for people with child abuse experiences to be abused again as adults, right? So... 
it is actually very possible that, you know, if somebody comes to you experiencing a lot of distress after a breakup, maybe they're making accusations of abuse and you start asking them for more specifics that you're definitely going to find out that, oh, this is real. Like they're, they're describing controlling, threatening behavior. They're describing very specific um, accusations of what can be called abuse, right? They're saying my ex-partner was physically abusive to me or my ex-partner was very controlling of me, etc. So sometimes that's going to happen. Um, and basically we just wanted to make sure that it was clear that we do acknowledge that that is sometimes going to be the end result of discernment. Absolutely. Um, and if that is the case, you know, grief is still necessary, right? It is still necessary for a person who has been abused to grieve that attachment because even in abusive situations, there was attachment. Um, and that is what part of what makes abusive relationships so complicated because it's not just that you're being abused by some stranger, but you're being abused by someone who you had an attachment relationship with. And so you're still going to need to go through a process of grieving the relationship as well as recovering from the trauma. Um, so that is still very important. If a person is coming to you and saying that they're leaving an abusive relationship, the thing that is a responsible thing for a friend or a community member to do is to help that person with safety strategies and safety planning um, to help protect them from potential stalking or ongoing um, abusive behavior, um, which we talked about a bunch in episode six. So yeah, we'll link that we'll in like that. in there, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more in the future. Um, but I just want to say that the majority of this episode, we have been focusing on situations of false accusations or overstated accusations. But... I maintain that cancel campaigns are still abusive, even if the accusations are true. And I think that that's maybe one of the most controversial things that I think. Um, but I do not believe that having been abused by someone ever gives us the right to abuse them, right? Um, I think that there is a difference between intervention, which we talk about this in episode six again, which is acts to try to prevent abuse from happening, and punishment, which is um, attempting to abuse the person back, right? right? And so, yes, sometimes there are situations where warning um, people is necessary, and that is not abusive. Um, yes, sometimes there are situations where um, there needs to be, like, very strong boundaries put in place, and that is not abusive. But stalking, doxing, like, um, massively trying to control this person's life, all of the types of things that we were describing— those things are abusive, even if the person has done abusive things themselves. And I think that that is hard for a lot of people to hear, but that is my deeply held conviction and belief. Um, and further, cancel campaigns are not helpful for survivors, even if abuse did happen, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, in fact, they're likely to put a survivor in more danger. Like, I often, like... I feel like my head is going to explode sometimes when people say that cancel culture is, like, a tool against abuse because, like, as a survivor of, like, severe domestic violence, I'm, like, if I had tried to cancel my ex, that would very much have resulted in him coming after me. Like, that kind of thing would have enraged him and it would have put me at further danger. So, like, usually when somebody is experiencing stalking or, like, serious um, abuse from someone, the last thing you want to do is, like, publicly draw attention to that person on a major stage of the internet, right? Yeah. Like, that is not an effective way to in intervene on abuse and it's actually very likely to put the survivor in greater danger just on a practical level whether or not that should be true it just is true right yeah. um and then further what it does is it it really keeps the attachment to the abuser alive and active in that person's life it doesn't allow the survivor to cut the cord and move on because it keeps the survivor attached in this like ongoing attempt at controlling the ex right and so 
that's like just an aside because I feel like we could talk a lot more about that yeah. in further episodes. Like we can't unpack that fully in this episode. But I just wanted to say so that it's clear for people listening that I don't think that cancel campaigns are an effective tool, even in situations of actual abuse. I think there's more effective tools that we can do to intervene on abuse and actually help support survivors and support people who have been abusive to get the help that they need to change their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much it for today's episode. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, definitely it's been a heavy topic, um, both for us to think about and also to, to actually, like, make this uh, episode. Like, you know, I definitely feel it in my own body, you know. It's intense stuff to talk about, and I definitely recommend for our listeners to go do something nice for yourself now and relax. Mm-hmm. Um, relax definitely. your nervous system. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess before we go, we do want to mention, uh, yeah, just like mention again that we have a Patreon that you can, um, you can support us with, uh, it's patreon.com slash fucking canceled with two L's. And, um, if you want to email us, uh, you can email us at fucking canceled at gmail.com. There's no U in fucking cause it wouldn't let us. And there's two L's in canceled cause we're Canadian. And check out our show notes. We'll put in a bunch of the stuff that we were referring to throughout this episode. If you want to read more about the stuff we were talking about. Thank you for being here and for your generosity having this intense conversation with us. Thanks, guys.